Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. and neighbors. It's Friday, April 16, and time for this week's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, after three months of focusing on the home front, COVID-19, the economy, and infrastructure, President Biden shifted his attention to foreign policy this week with two big announcements. First, as promised, he ordered all remaining American troops home from Afghanistan by September 11. Second, he slapped new sanctions on Russia for attempting to interfere in the 2020 election and expelled 10 Russian embassy personnel as spies. Meanwhile, the president is still hoping to round up Republican votes for his $2 trillion infrastructure plan, but vowing to do it all again with only Democratic votes if necessary. Is the chance of bipartisanship dead? And sadly, dominating the news this morning, another mass shooting, this one at the FedEx facility in Indianapolis with eight people dead. Trying to make some sense of all that's going on, joining us at, on today's panel, uh, Pema Levy, national political reporter for Mother Jones. Hi, Pema. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Glad you're there. Chris Liu is former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Institute. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Bill. And Hunter Walker, formerly White House reporter for Yahoo News, and now, Hunter, what's your new handle? A, a man is no one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going off to, to join the, uh, as you said earlier, the Substack Gold Rush. The Substack Gold Rush, right? And uh, so how can people find you there? And when does it all kick off? And let us know. I'm on Twitter at Hunter W. And my newsletter will launch, uh, we're saying, before the end of the month. But uh, there's a link right there on my Twitter to hunterwalker.substack.com. You can sign up. Uh, and if, if you enjoy a uh, little bit of politics in the morning, and I imagine your listeners do, I think you'll you'll enjoy the newsletter. All right. Congratulations. That's a big move. And uh, Thank very, you. very excited to see how it all works out. Uh, well, let's start, uh, and we have to start, didn't intend to start here, but with this, um, another mass shooting in Indianapolis uh, last night, some things have changed. We now have a president who is committed to do something about gun safety. We have a growing public response uh, in the, all the polls for background checks and for an assault weapons ban. And the NRA is in total disarray. They've declared bankruptcy, and their leader, Wayne Pierre, is under investigation for abuse of funds. With, will all of that make any difference in the chances to get anything through Congress, Pema, do you think? Oh, gosh, it's a good question. I mean, you know, waking up to these headlines, you know, and the fact that this is the fifth mass shooting in five weeks, I believe. And you think like, oh, you know, aren't we excited to get back to normal, right? Things yeah. are going back to normal. And then it just feels like, oh, right, this was also part of normal. Um, and can we finally not go back to this normal? Uh, but normal is also Congress not passing anything <laughs> to help with gun violence. So, look, I don't know. I think that, you know, it, again, it's it's a question of, of the filibuster, I think, with so many other things that um, Democrats really want to get done. Uh, you know, I think, once again, you have to look at, at the willingness of people to set aside that 60-vote threshold um, that stalls so much in the Senate uh, to see whether or not they can move forward on on gun legislation, as well as so many other things. And I, I don't think it will happen <clears throat> immediately, um, but uh, I guess you never know. All right. Uh, Hunter or Chris, do either of you see any more um, <laughs> light or any sunlight or any hope there? I, I think Pema hit the nail on the head. 
um, where, you know, as with so many issues, when we talk about this, it, it runs into the brick wall of the current uh, makeup of Congress and, and, and the gridlock that can come with that. Uh, and that's why I think you see so much growing momentum among Democrats and predict- uh, particularly progressives to reform the filibuster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the more we see these things um, and Joe Biden is unable to take truly major transformative action, the more you're going to see him pushed in that direction. I think the question is, and, and I, you know, I'm not sure enough where the White House is at on this, but would they see that as being pushed? Or, you know, is that what they've been hoping for all along? All, all along? Like, oh, we, we got to change this filibuster. Real shame. We have to do it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Chris, do you want to weigh in there? Um, how do you read it? You know, Bill, I remember the most emotional day we had in the Obama White House, and that was December 2012 after the Sandy Hook shooting. And it was as emotional as I ever saw President Obama. And while I am always cautiously optimistic that people will do the right thing in Washington and make the changes that the vast majority of people in this country think should happen, uh, you know, if 20 first graders being gunned down in their classrooms uh, can't change uh, the opinions of the U.S. Senate, that I'm really not sure that uh, people dying in a, um, I guess it's a, a facility in Indianapolis are going to change it. We will have the usual litany of thoughts, uh, thoughts and prayers today, and then uh, business as usual will continue uh, in this country. Yeah, sadly, I'm afraid that's the way it is going to be. So let's move to some of the other news of the week. President Biden, um, in the diplomatic room the other day, the same room where uh, George, President George W. Bush announced the invasion of Afghanistan 20 years ago, President Biden saying it's time to pull the plug. Here he is. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. So, Hunter, for those who have been listening to, uh, to Joe Biden during, the, uh, during his campaign, and uh, this really comes as no surprise, does it? Well, I, I wouldn't say that, right? Because for those who listened to Donald Trump during his campaign or for those who listened <laughs> yeah. to Obama during his campaign— um, good, good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a promise that's been made for a very, very long time. Um, so it's hard. You know, it's a huge deal. It's it's a really, really huge deal. After after 20 years, we are we are ending this war. Uh, but I come back to the question um, that I think I've asked on your pod uh, several times, which is, all right, Afghanistan's off the table. How many wars are we in? And I don't think you know, Biden or really anyone here in D.C. is talking about addressing, you know, the larger war on terror um, and America's footprint abroad, um, you know, and between all of the military actions in Africa, Syria, um, I'm not sure how you would still count Iraq. Um, you know, this is not uh, an ending to America's status as a nation <laughs> at war. This is an ending of a war. And as you can see, with the puggle is very passionate about this. <laughs> There's your phone's going off. Your dog is barking. It's, a, it's an exciting mo- a morning in the uh, Hunter Walker household. Uh, entrepreneurship <laughs> is getting off to a great start here. <laughs> um, uh, Chris, uh, how, uh, why President Hunter's right. You know, Barack Obama said he was going to end America's longest war. Why didn't he? And what what was the holdup? And what does Joe Biden, what does it say about, you know, Biden's willingness maybe to move forward where Obama wasn't? I I think it speaks a lot to Joe Biden, but I think it speaks as much to where the American people are right now. You know, I go back to that speech that President Bush gave in October of 2001 when he started the war. Uh, I remember it very clearly. Uh, But sadly, there's a whole generation of Americans who can't remember when this war started or why we're even there. Yeah. Uh, you know, I went back to that speech that Bush gave. He said, these carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations. And on that basis, one could argue that uh, the mission has been accomplished. But what is striking is when Bush said, your mission is defined, your objectives are clear, your goal is just. And 
we can agree that the goal is just, but I think after 20 years, it's not clear that our mission is defined or our objectives are clear. And so going from the great fanfare of that announcement that Bush made 20 years ago to relatively little public outcry this week when Bush, uh, when Biden made his announcement, uh, I think that is it's telling. The American people are tired of this. Uh, it, this is certainly not a risk-free decision, uh, but staying in longer certainly carries its own set of risks. Well, on that point, Pema, uh, as Chris says, it's not risk-free. Even some Democrats, uh, like Jack Reed of, uh, of Rhode Island, expressed some misgivings about pulling all troops out because it might leave us vulnerable to um, the re rebuilding of some terrorist network in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think that those fears have kept you know, as Biden said, had kept, uh, you know, presidents in Afghanistan have kept this country in Afghanistan for many years, making it our longest war. Um, you know, I, and it, you know, it, the politics of this have also morphed so much over, you know, the last few years here, especially with, you know, Trump wanting to pull out, but not, you know, now you have, you know, both, you know, elements of both parties on both sides of this equation here. So I, I just don't think it's a clean cut thing. Um, you know, I do think on some level, it's a bold choice if he does follow through. Obviously, you have to wait and see if the follow through is there. Uh, you know, if, you know, stuff on the ground changes it, if we end up, you know, elongating this day and, and does it act, does the plot actually happen? Um, but, you know, I, I just agree there are absolutely risks, um, you know, at, at the same time. Um, I, I certainly understand the perspective that, you know, 20 years is long enough. Right. So then the president, uh, the next day, actually, or maybe a couple of days moved to, um, lay some sanctions just yesterday on Russia. Uh, here is the president, uh, speaking about his conversation with Vladimir Putin. When we spoke again this week. I told him that we would shortly be responding in a measured and a proportionate way because we concluded that they had interfered in the election and solar winds was uh, inappropriate. I was clear with President Putin that we could have gone further, but I chose not to do so. I chose to be proportionate. The United States is not looking to kick off a cycle of escalation and conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable relationship. If Russia continues to interfere with our democracy, I'm prepared to take further actions to respond. So, Hunter, uh, one thing for sure, um, quite a difference between the way Donald Trump approached and treated Vladimir Putin and Joe Biden's doing. Yeah, I mean, with Trump, the argument people in his White House always made was that, you know, even though rhetorically he was sort of unwilling to poke the bear— um, that, you know, his sanctions and what have you were actually quite strong. There was some truth to that, but there's also, you know, in the realm of foreign policy, you know, some value to the rhetoric. Um, Biden calling calling Putin who he is, is, you know, um, something I think a, a lot of people were looking for for some time. That being said, you know, I've seen some debate unfolding in foreign policy circles about, you know, just how much this hurts Putin. Um, and I think, I, you know, I, I'm not expert enough to really get into that with precision, but what I would say is that unquestionably when we are fighting Russia um, in these sort of soft war measures, be they cyber attacks or, or, what have, or disinformation, what have you, it is an asymmetrical battle. Uh, because Putin is, you know, willing to do some stuff and willing to absorb some consequences that we are not. Uh, and, you know, I think everyone should keep in mind, he got into the intervention in the 2016 election expecting that Hillary Clinton was going to win and be pretty harsh on him. Uh, you know, he was, I think he's been ready for a Democrat to kind of wag their finger. Uh, and I'm just not sure, you know, how much we can change or take control of the overall dynamic in an asymmetrical situation like this one. Right. All right. So let's come back to the home front here, where the big issue now of President Biden in front of Congress with his what he called they're calling the American Jobs Plan. It's the infrastructure bill, two trillion dollars. Um, Chris, it looks like the era of big government and public investment is back big time. 
It, it may very well be. And you've seen just over the last 24 hours that Senate Republicans, or at least a group of them, uh, are coalescing uh, behind a smaller infrastructure package. But we should probably put smaller in uh, quotation marks because they're looking at anywhere from 600 to 800 billion, which just for a sense of perspective is the, about the same size as the stimulus in, in 2009 during the Great Recession. So there is there does seem to be consensus around things like roads and bridges, probably ports and waterways. I think where it gets trickier after that is, uh, you know, uh, the electric grid, broadband, solar and wind projects. And then you go further down the line uh, in, into, you know, R&D spending, workforce development. But there does seem to be a basket where there is some support. Uh, and if possible, those will move on a bipartisan basis. And then there's a whole other set of things, including some that we haven't even seen yet, uh, that may move through the reconciliation process. Yeah, uh, Pema, uh, in fact, Mitch McConnell has called this the Trojan horse, right? Because there's all kinds of stuff inside of it that's not really infrastructure. Here's uh, McConnell. What we are confronted with here is a totally left-wing administration with a slight majority in the House, a 50-50 Senate, trying to transform America into something no one voted for last year. They want to try to fundamentally change America into something it's never been. So, Pema, are we tied up on the definition of what's infrastructure and what's not? I'm not actually sure that we are. I feel like maybe we were last week or two weeks ago. <laughs> that was sort of the Republican talking point was like, you know, uh, broadband is an infrastructure or, you know, elder care is an infrastructure. Um, now it seems like, you know, with that uh quote from McConnell that you just played, you know, they're sort of turning to, ah, socialism, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> um, infrastructure is socialism. You're going to, you know, the, somehow the fabric of America will change um, if we have uh, more clean energy or, you know, access to uh, more childcare or broadband. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, we'll see what talking points come up. But I do think that Republicans are sort of on the hunt to, um, to attack and come out against a proposal that's ultimately very popular, uh, which is all of these things that America desperately needs to upgrade. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, and, you know, we drive around on our streets and we think, yeah, we really do need new roads. Um, but then as soon as, you know, you get into issues that are, are absolutely about how the economy functions and how people are able to take care of themselves and their families, um, but we're they weren't, you know, called infrastructure 50 years ago, uh, you know, then then that's where you start seeing a lot of, of opposition, I think. And I mean, it, it's really, it's also just really interesting to think about where Republicans would be right now if Trump hadn't been promising an infrastructure week for four years, but then never <laughs> delivered, right? I mean, I could honestly see there being a whole lot more opposition uh, than there is now. And then, and then the final thing I'll say is like, there's, obviously going to be fights about how this is paid for. Um, the one thing that I think Biden and Democrats have going for them, I can't remember where I saw this poll now, uh, but there was data that when voters were told that it was paid for with corporate tax hikes, they actually, that made the plan more popular mm -hmm. um, <laughs> because folks have been sitting around saying, you know, I don't think Amazon is paying their fair share, for example. Uh, and so, you know, Republicans are sort of coalescing, I think, uh, some around the idea of like, you know, this is going to kill jobs. We can't raise these taxes right now. Uh, and, you know, we'll see again if that becomes a winning argument for them. But at the moment, it's not. Right. It was a Quinnipiac poll, actually, that showed that um, the, the plan in itself was barely um, a majority of Americans approved it. But when you said this raises corporate taxes, it's shot way up, right, to people, <laughs> uh, people approving it. Right. But Hunter, isn't this a... A political problem for Republicans. I mean, there are bridges, there are roads, there are sewage treatment plants, there are hospitals and schools that, you know, badly need fixing in red states as well as blue states. Uh, Republicans really oppose all of these public works projects. 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a difficult needle for them to try to thread, particularly after, you know, much of the country is getting their free vaccine, which is kind of a taste of a massive, almost <laughs> socialistic public works program. Um, you're seeing them kind of try to cast it as spending, uh, try to highlight some of the sort of individualized what they would term as poison pills uh, that are inside of this legislation. Uh, but I think one of the really interesting things here, and it, it comes up when we're talking about both Afghanistan and infrastructure, um, you know, we can't discount how much I think the electorate um, has changed in the past couple of years. We, we are seeing more discussion of, you know, things like Amazon and workplace issues. Um, but also, there were essentially, and I think Pema was alluding to this, two areas where Donald Trump was, dare I say, sort of progressive. And those areas were foreign war um, and infrastructure. And I think Republicans are also coming to this discussion after, you know, as Pema pointed out, for four years, Trump said, I'm in favor of infrastructure. You know, for, for years, Trump said, we need to get out of these foreign wars. And I think, and I, you know, and Trump's kind of Voldemort now, no one wants to bring up his name, but, but he did lay a little bit of groundwork that makes things easier for Biden on both of these fronts. Mm -hmm. um, I'd like to ask each of you, uh, just before we take a break here, what do we what do we think and what do we see and what can we conclude so far and it hasn't even been a hundred days about the Biden presidency? I mean, you had the two trillion dollar stimulus. Now we've got the two trillion dollar infrastructure bill. There's a two trillion dollar human infrastructure bill, which the White House is working on now. Um, Chris, uh, if people thought that Biden was going to be a weak and interim president, they were reading him wrong, weren't they? Well, I, I think what I draw from this is how laser focused they have been on the, the, the biggest issue on voters' minds, which was COVID. Mm -hmm. And what they've done is they've put this bet on not just getting the vaccinations out as fast as possible, but getting economic relief to people. And the bet is that if they can accomplish both of those goals, it gives them the goodwill they need to show that government can do big things and provides the momentum to take on these other issues like infrastructure. Yeah, and Pema, even progressives are maybe reluctantly saying, yeah, this guy's turning out to be not so bad after all. Yeah, I've definitely seen people uh, on the progressive side, um, I think, sort of saying, you know, I might have been wrong about <laughs> about Biden. I think, you know, and, and, and Chris, I'm sure, can speak to this. There are some serious lessons learned um, coming out of, of 2009, 2010, the early Obama years. Uh, when, again, <laughs> you had a new Democratic president, you had an economic crisis, uh, and then you had, you know, attempts to compromise re with Republicans that dragged on too long. You had spending that was helpful, but not nearly enough. Uh, and I think, you know, and that was a, a drag on, on Obama's presidency, that, you know, for eight years. And so I think um, there's some real lessons learned here uh, you know, just you know, again, in in a in a really in a pragmatic sense. I mean, you could you know you could argue that's not Biden becoming suddenly super progressive. That's just him, you know, looking at at the facts and looking what happened and doing a course correction there. And and you know, it's not just you know Biden who's looking at that. It's you know someone like Chuck Schumer um, who's looking at that history and and learning from it. Um, the the other thing I would say that I think you know we won't know exactly how this plays out for many years to come. Um, but all of this spending, you know, I think is, you know, again, when you drive on the roads, you're like, man, we really got to repair these roads. Um, you know, all of this seems needed spending up front. You know, we obviously, you know, we need the clean energy infrastructure, all of, all of this stuff. Um, at the same time, you know, the question is, how much does this permanently change the country? How much does it set up future industries? Um, versus how much of it is sort of a short-term spending and then sort of like the Biden legacy subsides, right? We're not looking at, um, at this point, you know, programs that stay in perpetuity. There's talk about, um, you know, for example, the child tax credit uh, in the COVID relief bill, you know, hopefully becoming permanent, but at this point, it's only a year, right? So I think there are some questions about whether or not sort of the, the spending that we need right now uh, becomes sort of a lasting legacy or more of a temporary legacy um, in terms of, you know, because there's not like setting up of, of a 
permanent, you know, progressive, uh, for example, healthcare law. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and Hunter, you you referenced this a little earlier. Um, it, it's the fact that Biden has moved forward and it's with certain success, certain amount of success so far, even has some of the Republicans stumped on how to handle him. It it appears to me, right? They they can't quite get a handle on how they paint Biden or how they oppose him or how they get traction against him. Do you, do you see that? I, I see that a little bit. I mean, you know, how do you argue against things like COVID relief um, and, and infrastructure reform? Um, you know, something, but, but I think progressives are having a similar problem. Uh, and something where that really struck me was kind of uh, the whiplash that we saw on um, gun control recently, where, you know, there was a lot of anger that he wasn't bringing it up. Um, and then, you know, literally days later, when he named um, an ATF director who was literally Shannon Watts's dream uh, pick for the position, you saw a lot of happiness. Um, so their their opposition on that front was a little bit of a flash in the pan. Uh, and I was struck by something similar. I was um, with Biden when he flew to Pittsburgh uh, for the big infrastructure rollout, and we're on Air Force One. And, you know, Everyone is asking Karine Jean-Pierre, the deputy press secretary, about uh, AOC's criticism that the package was not big enough. And, you know, it struck me just how easily that criticism walked into an effective answer from her, which was, you know, all right, Republicans are saying it's too big. AOC is saying it's not big enough. I think that means we're just right. And, you know, I think that is a perfect encapsulation of how difficult it is to oppose this stuff. Um one thing I do want to point out is, you know, how important those Georgia Senate races were. I mean, we talk about how even now Biden is still running up against the filibuster. If they didn't have that simple uh -huh. majority in the Senate, I wonder if he'd have been able to get as much done. And then the other big driving force, you know, way uh, under the surface there is, again, that changing electorate. And, and Pema brought up Chuck Schumer. I think no one is a better example than that. Because, you know, Schumer's facing a potential primary threat from AOC, and all of a sudden Chuck Schumer wants weed, Chuck Schumer wants to cancel student debt. So, you know, you're seeing Biden get the wind at his sails of having a little bit of more control over the Senate. Um, he's got centrist allies who are more progressive than they've ever been, uh, and he's able to do a lot with that. Right. Uh, and so as Democrats uh, come together behind Joe Biden, uh, Republicans kind of are all over the place on what they want to do about Donald Trump moving forward. We'll get into that with uh, today's panel. Pema Levy from Mother Jones, Chris Liu from the University of Virginia Miller Institute and Hunter Walker from now on his own with Substack in his new newsletter. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back. And today's roundtable is brought to you by the Laborers International Union of North America, 500,000 strong, the good men and women of the Laborers Union. Under President Terry O'Sullivan, uh, infrastructure, hey, man, that's their game. Uh, they are heavy into construction and into infrastructure, rebuilding our roads and bridges and highways and ready to do more when this legislation passed. Also, the Laborers Union leaders in the energy field building solar turbines, wind, solar panels, wind turbines, and uh, old-fashioned pipelines as well, and many members of the Labor's Union, some 50,000, in the healthcare uh, area as well. So we salute the members of the Labor's Union, thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod, direct you to their website at liuna.org, liuna.org. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home? isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. 
Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back with today's uh, Reporters Roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Joining us, Hunter Walker, now out on his own. What's that website again? Your Twitter handle again, Hunter? So my Twitter is Hunter W. And if folks go there, they can find a link to hunterwalker.substack.com, where we are launching a newsletter imminently. Uh, and I definitely hope folks will sign up. There you go. Chris Liu, also here from the University of Virginia Miller Institute, and Pema Levy uh, from Mother Jones. So last weekend, since our last roundtable, uh, Donald Trump uh, came out of uh, hiding there at Mar-a-Lago, came off the golf course to address a group of Republican donors where he attacked Mitch McConnell as a dumb son of a bitch, uh, attacked uh, his wife, Elaine Chao, former uh, transportation secretary, for quitting her job uh, in response to the January 6th riots, and attacked Mike Pence for being a weakling and a coward uh, and not voting to overturn the uh, Electoral College uh, when it came before the Senate. Um so, Chris, is this what the Republicans need for 2022? Uh, it's clearly not what they need. It's probably what they're stuck with. <laughs> and I, I think it's, you know, look, Donald Trump has the ability to raise funds. He's obviously got a uh, very um, strong base. And that support will always matter in a Republican primary. What's not entirely clear is how much that will help in a general election, if at all. And what I was also struck by this week and you see these, obviously, comments about McConnell and Fauci and others that he's made, and they get some media attention, but they don't actually get that much anymore without mm -hmm. Trump being on Twitter. You know, two days ago, he went after FDA's decision to put a halt to the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine, and he floated a bunch of conspiracy theories, uh, and it got a little bit of ripple, but not much. And And I think what you've seen is that Without a social media uh, outlet, uh, he's really uh, been significantly weakened. Uh, again, he will have a lot of influence behind the scenes. There will have to be a lot of uh, managing him by Kevin McCarthy and others. But you get the sense from people like Mitch McConnell that they've, they've just moved on and they're going to you know, follow the traditional Republican policies and push those uh, and try to ignore Trump as much as possible. Well, it does seem to be the proverbial fork in the road, right? Do we go full-time Trump or do we take it, uh, advantage of the opportunity to break with Trump? We heard that from two leading Republican women this week. First, here is former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who had announced uh, made it clear that she was thinking of running in 2024. She's asked uh, about her plans now. Here's Nikki Haley. If he runs again in 2024, will you support him? Yes. If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run if President Trump ran. So Nikki Haley, she's with Donald Trump. If he runs, she would not run herself. Uh, Liz Cheney, meanwhile, was asked... Uh, what are your thoughts about Donald Trump in 2024, uh, Neil Cavuto on Fox, Fox Business News? If Donald Trump were the 2024 nominee, would you support him? I would not. Okay. Liz Cheney. That's clear. <laughs> well, Pema, which way do we go there, right, for Republicans? Yeah, I mean, right now, I think, I think that Nikki Haley is the one who's who's, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves and, and, and saying what, you know, she thinks she needs to say. Uh, and, and Liz Cheney is the one who's <laughs> already been censured for her, uh, you know, remarks there. So, I mean, look, I, I kind of feel like the, the, the party's in like a weird place where, especially because 
Trump is weakened. And I, I absolutely agree with what Chris said. You know, without him being on Twitter all day long, without him posting on Facebook at the moment, it it's just a, a different ball game. And there's there's a real chance for him to fade and for Republicans to move on. But they just they just won't. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, Trump is still popular. He's still a, a presence, but he's also a twice impeached former president uh, who lost to, you know, popular votes in a row. And I think that on some level, he's still who he is because Republicans let him be that in the same way that they, you know, accepted him uh, in 2016 and have stuck with him ever since. I think that, you know, there is a choice there to to move away from that. Um, I just don't know that they are willing to make that choice. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in, in that sense, um, you know, I think that, that Nikki Haley is, is where the party is right now. Um, mm -hmm. I just think it's an active choice. Right. Hunter, the one the person that I keep wondering about uh, is, is Mike Pence. So this week he had, he developed, he created his own pack, right? He's got this, and it's clearly... Pence is hoping that Donald Trump doesn't run and that he will and he will lead the party. Is is that at, you covered the White House for? Is that at all realistic? I mean, I can tell you that as far back as 2016, you know, Pence kind of had his eye um, on potentially, you know, running himself and winning. Um, you know, I don't think as I as I look around the country that I hear this great hue and cry for Mike Pence. Uh, I, I, I am not seeing the Pence momentum. Um, in fact, we're just, you know, 100 days and change out from a large number of Republicans literally trying to kill Mike Pence. So, you yeah, know, I, I wish him luck with that. But I think, you know, Pema hit the nail on the head. The Republican Party is in, as she said, a weird place. And I think, you know, when you have individual members of Congress, particularly in the House, uh, and, and please note, I'm, I'm not assuming anyone is acting on principle, the <laughs> numbers in their district may allow them to support, uh, to oppose Trump or go full Trump, right? Uh, but at the presidential level, we're seeing people like Haley and Pence have to you know, straddle what is essentially this divide in the party because, you know, they need national support and nationally Republicans are really split here. Uh, and it strikes me, I'm, I'm, my Brooklyn Nets are doing very, very well right now. So I'm going to use a bit of a basketball analogy. Um, you know, we've seen this in the NBA where a team builds around a superstar. Uh, and the Republicans essentially did that with Trump, who had this unique media appeal, great fundraising ability. And the problem with you know, uh, superstar team building is when the superstar is gone, you have to enter a rebuild. And, you know, Republicans are basically in this moment where they need to decide, uh, do we want out of his prime Trump or do we want to sort of begin the rebuild? And that's a long road back. Uh, you know, I certainly don't think it gets them 2024. Uh, the other problem with that is it's not the NBA, and it's not necessarily up to the GOP whether or not Trump can leave the stage. It's up to him. And I think that's why you see things like the Republican Senatorial Committee literally making up an award uh, and traveling to Mar-a-Lago to hand Trump this like gilded bowl for an award that had never been given before, just as he was just berating Mitch McConnell in, in what seemed like a clear you know, effort at placation. Yeah. The, the first and only recipient ever, right, of, of whatever this new award. That... <laughs> My mom says I'm great, too. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, one Republican, um, uh, Chris, that we hadn't heard from uh, for a while has resurfaced because uh, his book came out this week. And we're talking about the former speaker, John Boehner, who a cigarette in one hand and glass of Merlot in the others uh, doesn't hold back, particularly when it comes to a certain Republican senator, John Boehner. Well, this guy was not even a member of the U.S. House. He's a member of the Senate. And he's coming over to uh, the House side of the Capitol, stirring up uh, some of my knuckleheads uh, and pushing them to do things that about the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life. I don't really beat up too many people in this book except one, Ted Cruz, Lucifer in the flesh. <laughs> Lucifer in the flesh, <laughs> Ted Cruz. Uh, what are we to think about this Boehner book, Chris? 
well, I think the book apparently is quite amusing, but the audiobook is probably even better, uh, given <laughs> some of the things that he said, uh, uh, apparently, that were not in the book. I'd say this, which is, I think it both reflects the change in the Republican Party um, over the last decade. Uh, and again, it, but I think there's also a fair amount of revisionist history in this book as somebody like myself who was there uh, during the Obama years and saw the way that uh, John Boehner really blocked a lot of the Obama agenda. And I think there's been a couple of great book reviews on this. Julian Zelizer, who's a uh, professor at Princeton, did a nice review in the New York Times, where I think he really kind of goes into some of the claims that Boehner makes, um, where Boehner seems to be trying to distance himself from the Tea Party folks, uh, and how while he may have done that behind the scenes, he really was embracing uh, a lot of their uh, policies and their tactics along the way. So, uh, but again, you know, Obama is not particularly critical of Boehner uh, in Obama's book as well. And Obama always felt that Boehner was a guy that he probably could do business with in another political climate. Uh, and so, you know, again, whether whether Boehner's book is uh, on the mark at all, um, I think his brand of conservatism uh, probably is not in vogue right now in the Republican Party. But Hunter, I was pretty impressed with Boehner coming out and speaking his mind until he turned around and after attacking his fellow Republicans for all becoming Trumpers and abandoning what he thought the Republican Party should be, then he admitted that he voted for Trump in 2020. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think, you know, look, John Boehner, and he's got a product to sell right now, and, and actually he's got another product to sell as he's a cannabis lobbyist. So, um, <laughs> he's clearly looked at that divide we were just talking about in the Republican Party and decided for him, I think certainly with personal commercial endeavors, uh, it works well to be anti-Trump. Um, as Chris was pointing out, and as, as you just alluded to, there's a lot of revisionist history involved in that. And I, I really, you know, I saw the criticism on Twitter that sort of reporters were kind of fawning over Boehner and susceptible to his you know, revisions because essentially he drinks and uses cuss words. We love that. We love to report on that. And I think it's really true. And I, I think it's true in a larger sense where let's not pretend. And, and I say this as someone who knew Donald Trump for years before he ran for president and covered him. Let's not pretend that Donald Trump was like a sea monkey where we just added water in 2015 and he suddenly <laughs> appeared. You know, the groundwork for Donald Trump within the Republican Party, including participation at CPAC and what have you, was really laid in conjunction with the Tea Party. You know, if you didn't have... Um, Lou Dobbs and Joe Arpaio and some of those early people, you know, bringing a real anti-immigrant bent into the Republican Party, if you didn't have some of the militancy and, and sort of conspiracy mindedness of the Tea Party that people like Boehner allowed to flourish, you absolutely wouldn't have gotten Donald Trump. I mean, the direction of the Republican Party 10 years ago was Paul Ryan. You know, and, and we can debate him all we want, but it's a, it's a far different breed of conservatism than Donald Trump. And that happened on Boehner's watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, excellent point. Uh, yeah, Donald Trump did not come uh, out of nowhere. Uh, Pema, I want to give you the last word on one issue we haven't touched on yet. Um, make it brief. But yesterday, I was surprised how much attention this got. Uh, Senator Ed Markey and Congressman Jerry Nadler introduced a bill to add four seats to the Supreme Court. Is this the new Democratic Party platform, and is it going anywhere? I don't think it's the new Democratic Party platform, <laughs> uh, given that Mark Yebley was the only senator uh, there for that. Uh, but look, it's going to continue to animate, um, I think, some of the progressive left. And, you know, <laughs> with, uh, let's look, under Obama, you had... Republicans um, suing to overturn uh, the legislation he was passing. And you had these big dramatic showdowns before the Supreme Court. Uh, and the Supreme Court on some level maybe saved itself in a way by not just fully striking down Obamacare, for example. Uh, I think the Supreme Court will rise in salience uh, the more we see the actions that Joe Biden takes um, headed straight for the Supreme Court uh, once again. Uh, and, and, and the other thing, of course, is, you know, we currently have a 6-3 court 
you know, what happens um, if there's a retirement or another death? I think that that could also be uh, an inflection point or a point for change. But, you know, over the last few months, um, the, the court has not done something that I think has has brought it to the forefront for Democrats who are, as we've been discussing, so focused on on other priorities at the moment. So I don't think they want to get dragged down in that right now. Um, I think events over the next four years could dictate if it uh, rises to the top. And and in the meantime, President Biden has said he's going to appoint a commission to study whether or not the court should be changed, and that, that most people, I think, are, are going to wait till that commission comes out with its report or its recommendations, whatever. A lot going on this week. I think we've uh, covered most of the highlights. We thank you very, very much, Pema Levy, Chris Liu, and Hunter Walker, but we won't let you go without um, just a word on what was the one story this week that caught your attention you couldn't get away from uh, your favorite story of the week. Uh, how about it, Hunter? So this isn't so much a single story as an ongoing drama. Um, and I, I, I don't want to offend any of your listeners or any of my, uh, my fellow roundtable oh, members here. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> but I have long been fascinated with the subculture of adults who are obsessed with Disney World. Um, and they've they've had a very tough time in this pandemic because the happiest place on earth has been shut. Um, but in the past couple of weeks, Disneyland in particular has tried to reopen uh, with some questionable safety practices, um, you know, in an effort to basically get the most hardcore Disney addict, addicts their fix. Um, Jezebel, the blog, has been chronicling this wonderfully. Um, and it has gone terribly. Uh, there's been hour-long lines, um, and there also was this amazing incident where a man sort of refused to um, go through a temperature check, and when you know he was grabbed by the very robust Disney security, uh, he said you know that they were treating him unconscionably because he'd paid fifteen thousand dollars for his family's vacation at quote the most magical place on earth. He then proceeded to call them Nazis and all sorts <laughs> of names under the sun. So I'm just really enjoying watching the Disney <laughs> addicts emerge from their pandemic cocoon into a theme park that I don't think is ready for them. The happiest place on earth, not. Indeed. Uh, yeah, indeed. How about it, Chris? So, Bill, a momentous event is happening in Washington next Monday. Oh. Uh, it's happening at our beloved local airport, which I still call National Airport. Oh, yes. You may know this. On Monday, the infamous Gate 35X is closing. And for all of the listeners who are not from Washington, uh, 35X isn't just one gate. It's like a bus terminal inside of an airport. Uh, and you stand around in this area with without a lot of seats, no place to charge your phone. There's no bathrooms, water fountains, uh, vending machines. It and is literally like it is every hell. It is hell. <laughs> yes. I... And literally every 15 minutes, a flight leaves. And it's generally on, it's almost always on regional jets yeah. heading for smaller cities. Uh, I was startled to read that at its peak, 100 flights a day took off from 35X. <laughs> And you, so you go down to it, you have to figure out what the right door to go out because they're constantly oh, yeah, changing yeah. the door. <laughs> you get on a bus, uh, the bus takes you to the plane, then you stand on the tarmac or on the boarding ramp, even if it's raining yes. or snowing. Uh, and then you get on a too cramped a plane. So, and what's always been amusing about 35X is so many politicians take 35X because they're going to places like right. Providence and Nashville. And so, especially on a Thursday evening or a Friday morning, there's just hordes of members of Congress trying to figure out where to charge their phones. There's no place to sit. And it's completely uh, unglamorous, but <laughs> wonderfully democratic. Uh, but it will uh, it's coming to an end on Monday, and there's a brand new terminal opening at National next week. Yeah. Well, let's. Can we also remember the greatest moment in 35X history, which was at the height of the Mueller probe when Robert Mueller and Don Jr. were stuck together in 35X for like an hour, like like ten feet away from each other. There's an incredible picture. I'd encourage everyone to look it up. R.I.P. 35X. <laughs> I've been stuck there many, many times. Glad to see it go. Where are we, Pema? What caught your attention? Oh, yes. Oh, man, I just want to talk about 35X now, but that's okay. I can move on. Um, the only place I came so close to missing a flight, because it is so confusing. Um, 
I, I like to, when I can, rep my, my colleagues here. And um, I wanted to give a shout out to uh, one of my colleagues, Jackie Flynn Mogison, who wrote the most delightful story. <laughs> um, it turns out that she is a big enthusiast of tents. And uh, I think as we all can agree, but we may not think of it very much, tents have really had their moment during the pandemic. Um, and so she wrote up a bit of an ode to the tent um, in a story called The Most Important Pandemic Industry You've Never Thought Of. And there's some history of tents. There's, it's just delightful writing. So if you just sort of want to take, take a break from all the bad and sort of think about one of the good things that came out of the pandemic, you can, you can uh, send it up for tents. I saw a story last week about a kid, a teenager, who put up a tent in his backyard and spent every night, 365 nights during the pandemic, in his backyard tent. So, oh my gosh. Well, yes. I mean, that's a, <laughs> there well, you go right there. <laughs> yeah. All right. There you go. Shout well, out to that kid's parents. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, um, my favorite story of the week uh, actually happened yesterday in the uh, parliament in Canada. Uh, they had a um, meeting of the Canadian parliament. It was online, of course, because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, I might add that the rules of the parliament say that uh, the men, members of the parliament, are required to wear a jacket and tie, a shirt, trousers, and underwear. Um, but member of parliament William Amos uh, showed up for this meeting wearing none of the above. <laughs> this member of parliament had been out for a jog. <laughs> he came in, uh, took a shower, and was changing his clothes uh, when he flicked on his computer, knowing the meeting had started, not realizing that he was on camera. And so he popped up at this meeting of parliament totally buck naked, um, which of course caused <laughs> some consternation among the rest of the uh, members. Uh, everybody has admitted that this was purely by accident. But, uh, you know, they used to remember Chris and Pema and uh, Hunter, they always tell politicians, the microphone is always hot, right? You have to remember that. Um, now we have to remind them that the camera is always hot too. Uh, and maybe Jeff Tubin should have learned that lesson as well. <clears throat> oh, before that. Uh, at any rate, that's it for today's roundtable. Hunter Walker, good luck with your new venture. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Pema Levy and Chris Liu. Thank you for being there as well. And thank you all for listening. Uh, it's been a busy week. We will be back with our next podcast on Tuesday with an interview with Congressman John Yarmouth, who is uh, not only co-chair of the Bourbon Caucus in the United States House of Representatives, but more importantly, he is chair of the Budget Committee. We want to talk to him about the chances for getting any Republican votes on the president's infrastructure bill. Uh, meanwhile, have a great weekend. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. Stay safe. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.